not know it from the liberal media coverage, but the Whitewater investigation is going ahead by full steam. humorous that you would try to claim that there is no liberal bias in the media. is entitled to use freedom of the press to spare as much propaganda as we wish. There is liberal bias. There's a liberal bias. There's a liberal bias Think the media doesn't have an agenda? Well, think again. The mainstream media really represent elite interests, and they serve those elite interests in a way that can be described as carrying out a propaganda function. If you want to understand the way some system works, you look at its institutional structure. How, how is it organized? How is it controlled? Um, how is it funded? And so on. The big question, of course, is what kind of information do we get? Does it come from a diverse range of perspectives, or are some views dominant and others excluded? The most commonly repeated theory is that the media tilt towards the left or to the liberal end of the political spectrum. What's curious about this view is that there's almost no evidence to support it. In fact, the bulk of evidence suggests that the media tend to be biased the other way. The spectrum of opinion most often represented goes from center to right, while voices on the left are generally absent. This is the essence of Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky's thesis. In the last 10 or 20 years, there's been massive research uh, documenting the fact that the media are extraordinarily subordinated to external power. Now, when you have that power, the best technique is to ignore all of that discussion ignore it totally, and to eliminate it by the simple device of asserting the opposite. If you assert the opposite, that eliminates mountains of evidence uh, demonstrating that what you're saying is false. That's what power means. And the way you assert the opposite is by just saying the media are liberal. Okay, now the question that we discuss is, are the media too liberal or are they not too liberal? We're talking about your letters saying that the media were biased in the last election. The bulk of our mail supports the notion that there's a definite liberal tilt to the news media. All right, now that we've narrowed the agenda to the one acceptable question, are the media too liberal, let's have a look at the way it's argued. Uh, if you want to show that, uh, you would look at the media product and you would try to demonstrate that it uh, reflects uh, you know, a slant or a distortion supporting a liberal agenda. Nobody does this. That would take a little work. And besides, if you did it, you'd immediately fall on your face because it worked the other way. So what's done is to produce a, a proposal which is so idiotic uh, that you have to uh, wonder at the cynicism of the people who are putting it forth and, uh, and their contempt for the population. The proposal is the following. Let's ask how journalists vote. Okay, so we find, let's say, 80% of them vote Democratic. Okay, we've now proven the media are too liberal. It proves nothing. First of all, no matter what, even if the facts are right, it proves zero. Uh, you could find that 99% of the 
journalists or members of the Socialist Workers Party, uh, you know, or, or, or some Maoist group. And that in itself would prove nothing about the media output. Uh, the issue is whether the media are free. Uh, are the media, by their institutional structure, free to allow expression of opinion from whatever source and looking at any topic and so on and so forth? That's the question. All right, but let's put that aside and look at the facts. Suppose it's discovered that 80% of journalists vote Democratic. What does that tell you? The difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is virtually nil. Uh, these are just two factions of the business party, two very virtually indistinguishable factions of the business party. So in the last election, for example, if you had interchanged Dole and Clinton, nobody would have noticed the difference. Uh, there are marginal differences between them. True, they, they have somewhat different constituencies, and that sometimes shows up in small policy decisions, but they basically reflect the same system of power. So if it turned out that 80% of journalists were part of one faction of the business party rather than another faction of the business party, would that tell you anything? Even if you take these studies at their face value, there, there are a number of flaws with them. Perhaps the most important one is that they assume that it's the journalists rather than the owners, the advertisers, the news shapers or the newsmakers who control the manufacture of news. That's a bit like saying that the workers on the factory floor decide what the car industry produces. What the propaganda model tries to do is stipulate a set of institutional, ideological variables that reflect this elite power and that powerfully influence the media. Herman and Chomsky used the metaphor of filters. There's all this information out there, but only some of it gets through. Now, of course, the use of filters is inevitable. The news has to select and edit information. But that filtering isn't just a question of free journalistic judgment. It's heavily influenced by a series of institutional pressures, such as who owns the media, the role of advertisers, the kinds of sources that are used, and a more direct form of pressure that Herman and Chomsky called flag. Key question in any democracy is what makes it through the filters and what gets filtered out. If you look at the agenda-setting media, uh, what are they? Well, in the first place, they're huge corporations, uh, parts of even bigger corporations like, you know, Westinghouse and so on. So they are subparts of, of huge concentrations of private power. We're used to thinking of these huge corporations that run the media as large, faceless entities, but they're actually run by people with opinions and a very specific set of interests. And a few of them might be liberal on some issues that don't affect the bottom line, like abortion. But when it comes to the bulk of issues, they're significantly more conservative than most Americans. When we talk about media ownership and control, we're talking about the ownership and control by very wealthy people who have interlocking directorships with many other corporations. Now, very often they don't intervene in a gross way, but, but in, for example, Larry Lawrence Grossman, um, who was the president of NBC in his autobiography, mentions that the GE chairman of the board, Jack Welch, pointed to him and said, remember you work for General Electric Corporation. Now, in the case of, of hands-on owners like Rupert Murdoch, they obviously come in and impose a, an overall policy on their subsidiaries. In the nature of the media business, 
regardless of technology, the proprietors can run the show in this way. When Rupert Murdoch takes over the London Times and the Sun in London and the New York Post, the, the policies change markedly. Editors are put in who will meet Rupert Murdoch's conservative biases. In fact, in England, <clears throat> there's another very powerful media entrepreneur named Conrad Black who controls the 50% of the newspapers in Canada, owns about 100, over 100 papers in the United States, including the Chicago Sun-Times. Like Murdoch, he's a very conservative man. Their power is so great that when Tony Blair became head of the, the Labour Party, he actually went to Australia to visit Murdoch and to, to try to convince Murdoch that he had proper credentials. And he convinced Murdoch. And in, in the last election, Murdoch actually supported the, the Labour Party and, and Tony Blair over the Conservative Party. Part of the reason for that was that, surprisingly enough, the Conservative Party had proposed some limit on, on a concentration in the British media. And Murdoch was reportedly furious at this. The Labour Party had had even a more stringent proposal, but at Blair's insistence, it was dropped. Well, Rupert Murdoch changed his mind. He likes to back a winner, and he's, there's a sort of implicit understanding between Mr. Blair and Mr. Murdoch that uh, since the Murdoch press treated Mr. Blair kindly during the election, Mr. Blair will treat Mr. Murdoch kindly now that he's in power. So you, here you have a, an amazing case of policy uh, imposed and with such force that great leaders have to come and genuflect to Murdoch. TCI is the nation's largest cable provider, kind of gatekeeper that decides which channels that get carried and which don't get carried. As you can imagine, that makes them a very powerful part of the media system. TCI is owned by a man called John Malone. He gets right-wing channels like the National Empowerment Channel onto his cable system, but he can and does keep out any left-wing equivalent. One thing that's always interested me is how the conservative critics of the media, who allege that the media are liberal, ha have a tendency to ignore ownership. They, they sort of pretend that the um, media are controlled by Dan Rather and, and Peter Jennings and these, these people down at the bottom of the, of the uh, power hierarchy in the media. We're entering the new millennium with just a few huge companies. Time Warner, ABC Disney, uh, Murdoch's News International, Viacom, that are not just the news media, but the entire culture, from record labels to magazines to film studios to cable TV stations. We've seen a massive concentration of power in other industries too, but with media, the dangers of that narrowing are much more troubling. Another important filter is advertising. As they say, he who pays the piper calls the tune. Uh, in, in a commercial media system, the person who pays is the advertiser. Magazines get about 50% of their revenue from advertising. Press gets about 80%. And with radio and TV, it's, it's pretty much close to 100%. If you run a news organization, these are people you can't afford to offend. Uh, like other corporations, they sell a product to a market. Uh, in their case, the market is advertisers, other businesses. Uh, the product is audiences. Well, if you just look at the basic institutional structure of that system and you, a, ra and a rational 
person will ask, what kind of news and interpretation is going to come out of this? Well, the picture of the world that's going to come out is going to be one that's supportive to the needs and interests of the sellers, the buyers. In its impact on the media, advertisers affect them mainly by wanting a proper environment. They don't, they don't intervene directly too often, but mainly they tell the media what they want. They ex the media are in fact soliciting them. They know what they want. So there's a constant interplay. And but sometimes programs are produced that they don't like ex post and they come along and they complain. In the case, for example, the newspaper had an article on automobile buying and said that this is a, a seller's market and the, auto the new car dealers are asking for a 7.5% uh, profit margin, but if you're smart and bargain with them, you can get it down to, to half that. And the auto dealers in the area were furious, and they raised cane, they complained, they started an advertising boycott, and the publisher, this little newspaper, issued a public apology and said they, they were all wrong. One station manager of a TV station in Boston was quoted a year or so ago saying that since Auto advertisements are about 25% of local advertising. It is an unwritten rule that you will never discuss uh, buying autos and make any critique of, of the process of buying autos. It would, it, it's an unwritten rule. The Chrysler Company, for example, they sent out a letter to the magazines they advertise in. Chrysler's a, a big company, so that's a lot of magazines. And they, that letter insisted that they send their articles to Chrysler in advance so that they could screen them in order to see if they were suitable. If they didn't like the articles, they'd pull the ads. It's what we might call corporate censorship. Some of the prime advertisers actually have a powerful influence on public broadcasting, too, because in the desire to curb public broadcasting, to keep it within proper bounds, uh, conservatives have kept its funding in, in short supply. During the Reagan years, there was a real, very sharp cutback of funding for PBS and a real attempt to push them into the commercial nexus. So who comes into the picture to fund uh, PBS? Well, the, the, the advertising community. Welcome to Mobile Masterpiece Theatre. For nearly 30 years, we've been proud to provide the energy that helps public television run. What has happened over the years in PBS is that their regular public affairs programs have become very conservative dominated, and it's partly because there's money there to, that, that will uh, fund those programs. General Electric, which has its own network, funds the, the McLaughlin show, which is on every week, and Tony Brown, a black Republican, who's on every week. So that even on PBS, which is supposed to be the focal point of liberalism, conservatives dominate. One could argue that the evolution of the American television system is really a case study in the evolution of what happens when you have advertising dominating a media system. Another important filter is sourcing. The media depend on a 
steady stream of news and they come to rely on powerful sources who can give them this regular news. The media locate reporters with regular beats to these primary news sources. David Martin, CBS News, the Pentagon. Bob Schieffer, CBS News at the Capitol. John Donvan, ABC News at the White House. If there's some source that gives out news every day or regularly, and this source is credible so that you can offer the news without worrying about whether it's going to be even true or false, that's very economical. We recently had this experience with Mr. Clinton's calling of this volunteerism summit. We need an era of big citizenship. That is why we are here. He announced that volunteerism is taking a new importance in the United States, and he got some very important dignitaries like General Colin Powell to be one of the sponsors. It had headlines day after day on this marvelous, wonderful event. It was made newsworthy by the fact that the President of the United States was pushing it and got dignitaries. Its, its, its substance was not given close attention. Of course, there, there were protesters at, at the summit convention. But they were marginalized, although they're making a very, very little good point, namely that the people who were sponsoring the conference had just passed a ghastly uh, so-called welfare reform bill that was going to push millions of people into the, the need for volunteers. So it was, in, in a sense, a huge hypocritical operation. But the media took it at face value because it was peddled by dominant sources, primary definers who defined what was news. Journalists are not supposed to express their opinions. Opinions are supposed to be on the editorial pages. On the front page, you have news. But of course, everyone in the, who thinks knows that's mostly meaningless. Uh, journalists do express opinions, but they don't put them in their own words. So the way to express an opinion is to go to an expert and ask the expert, what do you think about such and such? And then you quote the expert. That's not your opinion. Quoting the expert, it's objective. But of course, you choose the experts properly so that they will express the acceptable opinions. There's a question, there's always a problem, who is going to be the experts? It could be that dissidents would be experts. Since that presents a problem, conservatives have frequently organized think tanks at which experts will be cultivated who meet the conservative standard. Institutions like uh, the Georgetown Center for Strategic and International Studies as a think tank that specialized in international affairs. And it was in a revolving door relationship with the CIA and the State Department. Same thing has, has been true of the American Enterprise Institute, which is a very important uh, corporate-funded think tank that sponsors economists and political scientists and others who are very conservative and speak the, the corporate line. There have been a number of studies uh, of the experts who are used by the news media. Time and time again, the people who come out on top in these studies are right-wingers. One of the recent studies looked at all the think tanks quoted by major media in 1995. Top of the list, cited over 2,000 times, came, came the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation makes no pretense of being anything other than a voice of conservative right-wing thought. In fact, what this study showed was that three of the top four on the list were solidly conservative, corporate-funded think tanks. In total, 51% of the citations were from conservatives, 
41% were from moderates, um, think tanks like the Brookings Institute or the Council on Foreign Relations, and only 7.5 were from experts coming from a progressive or left of centre perspective. What's interesting is that the voices that are excluded are often actually more in tune with American public opinion, whether it's on social policy or government spending priorities, than groups like the Heritage Foundation or the Cato Institute. And so you have really a closed system in which the, the sourcing is the government, the power, powerful sources of the government, well, and then their complementary, quote, independent experts. It's a beautiful system. Slack is a, a filter that means negative feedback. Slack really is important when it comes from people who can really threaten the media effectively. If you want to write a story about, say, the military system, you go to the Air Force, they have a huge publicity system, they're very nice, they'll give you all the data and the work and the right ideas. If you just you change a few words, maybe. If you follow that script, you'll never get into any difficulty. On the other hand, if you begin to challenge any of these things, you will get into problems. Some years ago, the Chicago Tribune hired a man from the military who was an ex-Marine named David Evans. He was their military reporter. David Evans knew a lot about the Pentagon. He was an honest man. He wasn't, he wasn't a, a, a flunky of the Pentagon. He was an old veteran, obviously incredibly loyal to this country, but he didn't believe that the Pentagon always told the truth, and therefore the Pentagon didn't like him at all. So the Chicago Tribune's publisher was being constantly assailed by the public relations department of the Pentagon and the contractors, and eventually David Evans was fired. Another black form of flack that's very important now and very obvious is libel suits. A company like Philip Morris, for example, going after uh, ABC for having made allegations about nicotine manipulation in cigarettes caused ABC eventually to to, to uh, settle on a very apologetic terms. Tonight, for the second time in a week, a major broadcast network will apologize to the tobacco industry. We apologize to our audience, Philip Morris and Reynolds. The other major kind of flack that should be mentioned explicitly is the organizations that have been organized mainly by the right-wing right foundations to monitor and discipline the media on a continuing basis. The most notable is accuracy in media and is funded by corporate money and it monitors the media and writes letters and threatens. I told the uh, chairman of the New York Times and the editor of the other day that uh, now is the time to have a proper investigation. There are basically three kinds of flag. One, pressure from government, which is particularly important for, say, defence or foreign policy issues. Two, pressure from corporations. And thirdly, pressure from corporate-funded right-wing pressure groups like accuracy and media. What's notable is that on issues where it counts, all the pressure comes from the right, not from the left. And that might be why we hear, hear so much about this mythical creature, the liberal media, because we hear people complaining from the right, but not from the left. So, so what emerges from this systematic analysis is that the idea of the liberal media is a myth. 
In fact, once you do a systematic analysis of media institutions, the whole idea of a liberal media really begins to look rather silly. The media owners, the advertisers, the news shapers, the news makers, and the powerful groups who put pressure on the media, they all represent interests that go from the middle of the road to very conservative. A left-wing or liberal media clearly goes against their interests, and they control the media. How might we expect them to cover social and economic policy issues? Well, the one major area of government spending that the left argues is excessive is the military. So we'd expect the liberal media to turn a critical eye on the quarter of a trillion dollar defence budget to ask questions like, why is this such a priority when the risk of a foreign policy power invading the US is virtually zero? Or why are we spending billions of dollars on B-2 stealth bombers when they don't work in the sun or in the rain or when it's too cold? With other areas of the budget that the left supports, like welfare, which is incidentally much smaller than the military budget, we'd expect to see a liberal media pointing out that the level of support here for poor people is much lower in the US than it is in other developed countries. There seems to be a consensus now among American leaders in the business community that the welfare state has to be cut back. President Clinton is promising to end welfare as we know it, and just about everyone agrees that the system is in need of an overhaul. We're now, we're now in a period where the establishment having decided that they are the targets, the media really don't discuss uh, whether there are, could be, for example, other targets that we could be going after the military budget again. But it's been decided that those, that those things are off the agenda, and it's the social budgets that must be cut. If we look at the interests of media corporations, we can see what behind, lies behind the media's logic. So, for example, two of the companies that benefit most from high levels of defense spending are General Electric and Westinghouse. Westinghouse owns CBS, and GE owns NBC. So cutting defense is clearly not in their interests. We see a sequencing of targets in cutting back on the social budgets. We start with the ones that, that are most vulnerable, the, the AFDC clients, the teenaged mothers. They don't talk much about the tax burden of welfare, because it's actually not very huge, but they talk about welfare as being damaging to the welfare client. It's going to be hard to say, we're not going to give you more money for having more and more children once you're on welfare. But we're doing that because we love the people that are beneficiaries of welfare. That pretense is given that the that tough love is being applied for the benefit of these dependents who are being freed, empowered by removal of these benefits. If you take, say, AFDC, a families with dependent children, the, uh, um, it was always low, but it declined in 1970 to 1990. Along with it, there started a huge propaganda assault. To many people, these girls are public enemy number one. Like most American teenagers, they started having sex by the age of 15 or 16. You know, a taxpayer sitting at home will say, why should I pay for your mistake? The leading image was the black welfare mother riding in a Cadillac, uh, you know, breeding, all breeding like rabbits so we can pay them. Complete fabrication. In fact, it was quite the opposite. So that 
propaganda system uh, was developed with, you know, with considerable skill at the same time that actual support systems, always low, were in fact declining with the obvious effects on breakup of families and child abuse and child neglect and so on. In fact, the main effect of welfare reform is almost certainly going to be to drive down wages for poorer workers. Because uh, what's happening is that uh, uh, even poorer people are being forced into the labor market. Uh, the intent is to make poorer people even poorer uh, and to make them hate and fear each other even more and to make them pay less and less attention to the exuberance in the business press about the extraordinary wealth that's accruing to a very tiny sector of the population. Dan, nobody I talked to today can remember a stock market as hot as this one. It's a real rampaging bull market. In fact, in just the past two and a half years, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has doubled. The media coverage of welfare has been extraordinarily one-sided. We see stories of so-called welfare queens, but never stories of people who've been saved from desperation or hunger or domestic abuse by the welfare system. We hear from wealthy politicians and well-paid representatives from corporate think tanks who all say that welfare should be cut, but we very rarely hear from advocates for the poor. The climate's actually so distorted that when welfare reform was being debated, you hardly ever heard anybody make the simple point that cutting programs to the poor will significantly increase poverty. The media have uh, not done an, an, an honest job on Social Security. It's a totally concocted uh, crisis that is meant to create panic. Old age, words that evoke age-old fears of being left behind, left without. It's caused a lot of young people to, to think that, that, that Social Security isn't going to be there when they, they, they get older. But it, it, that's a complete fraud. It won't, will only not be there if they allow these propagandists to scale back the system and to privatize it. It's partly on the hit list because it's so successful. It demonstrates that a government program can be extremely effective. The administrative expense of the social welfare system is under 1% of the total revenue, and it's brought vast numbers of elderly people out of poverty. It's been a, a tremendous success. If we privatized it, there could be a lot of money made by people in, in the market. So very important force pushing for privatizing Social Security is the market participants, the mutual funds, the security dealers all over the place. They could make a huge mint if Social Security funds were channeled through them. And so they've been forecasting that, that, that things are going to collapse maybe in 2030 or maybe 2070. One thing that's always impressed me is how, for the first time, the establishment looks into the future. I mean, on things like environmental controls, they, they don't think more than one year out. But on something like Social Security, all of a sudden they're really focused on 70 years into the future, which is a little droll. Uh, there have been public opinion polls in the United States on health care since the 1940s. Uh, and um, uh, there's a, a, a very steady figure, a, a considerable plurality or sometimes majority, depending on how the question is asked, 
uh, is in favor of uh, single-payer plant, meaning comes out of the tax system and uh, is accessible to people generally. But a plan like the kind that exists in every other industrial country of the world and many non-industrial countries. All right, when the big health care debate came with Clinton, uh, it, uh, it, when you looked, uh, there were basically three options. Uh, there was the Clinton system, uh, which essentially handed the health care system over to big insurance companies. Uh, there was a conservative, so-called conservative critique of that, which handed the system over to big insurance companies in a slightly different fashion. Uh, and there was a third position, which said, don't hand it over to insurance companies at all. Let's leave it in public hands. Single-payer option. It is about time that we tell these insurance industry mechanics, which are pocketing 34 cents out of every dollar for every ounce of health care they deliver, for every dollar we spend, they take 34 cents. It's about time we dump this junker and get on the road to affordable health care for all Americans with freedom of choice, cost control. We can do this in America under the single-payer provision. Well, if you look at polls, uh, the third option, let's keep a public system, that had very substantial support, usually majority support. And that was occasionally wrecked. But if you look at the debate, it was only between the first two systems. And that's the way the health care debate continued. The only question allowed to appear in the arena of debate was which device do we use to hand health care over to bureaucrats and insurance company offices, meaning uh, very high costs, extreme inefficiency, very high administrative costs, much more so than the public system. Their goal is to make profit, which means minimal care and you know, maximal supervision. Uh, and the only question is which of these, which variant of these systems will be allowed to exist, the Clinton variant or some other variant. Uh, but another possibility, well, maybe we just shouldn't have uh, uh, huge insurance companies uh, running our lives uh, and bureaucrats in offices uh, deciding whether I can see a doctor tomorrow and doctors filling out tons of forms and patients waiting in line and not getting care. The, the idea that you might not want that, well, that's not under discussion. Uh, there's a consensus amongst the political elites, many of whom receive campaign contributions from the health insurance industry, that the U.S. shouldn't have a single-payer system. Because of those pressures, single-payer is hardly ever mentioned by these political elites, and they tend to be the people that dominate the discussion. During the first six months of the healthcare debate in 1992, the New York Times only mentioned the single-payer option five times, and even then it was only in a single sentence. The healthcare system in the United States is really an anachronism. Every other developed country has pretty much abandoned the free market approach because it's inefficient and because it leaves too many people without adequate coverage. And it's the corporate media, really, that's been instrumental in keeping it that way. If the media really were liberal, what, what would we expect to see in the coverage of labour and business? In a liberal media, we'd expect to see far more coverage from a labour angle rather than from a business angle. If, on the other hand, the media represent the interests of corporate elites, well, then we'd expect a pro-corporate slant. So we need to ask the question, what does the coverage actually tell us? Just open this morning's paper and uh, compare the size of the business section with the size of the labour section. There is no labour section. Uh, if there's any labor news at all, it's covered 
a footnote in the business section. Uh, the reason is that the um, almost everyone, you know, the overwhelming majority of the people in the country are wage earners, labor. But their interests count as nothing. Uh, the only interest that counts is uh, the small sector of investors. So there's a business section. Uh, so, for example, the stock market's a big issue. Uh, a lot of coverage in the press about what's happening to the stock market. Which lifted the Dow Industrial Average 28 and a half points. They set up a roar of delight when trading closed today. Uh, so, yes, the interests of 1% of the population merit a special section of the paper. The press has not paid much attention to the very unfortunate bad things that have happened to labor and the labor movement over the years. Median real wages have, have actually gone down. We're talking here about the majority of Americans. Their trials and tribulations and suffering in this period have gotten very, very modest media coverage. The interests of business and big money are, are inscribed within the routines of news reporting. The stock market, the NASDAQ, they're reported on a daily basis. But labor only appears really when they're doing something that inconveniences people, so when they're on strike, for example. Eleven people were arrested for blocking the entrance to a UPS facility in Massachusetts. In this fourth day of the strike, tensions are mounting, erupting in a clash once again near Boston. that most impresses me about the media treatment of, of markets is how they treat wage increases as actually a negative factor. Wage increases mean cost increases for business. And so wages are looked upon as a cost of production. It's not, they're not looked upon as the income to the mass of the society for which increases are therefore beneficial and good. If the media were in fact concerned for the general welfare, wage increases would be basically considered to be very good. But if you're looking at it from the standpoint of the elite interests of the profit margins of firms and stock prices, then wage increases are detrimental. They encroach on margins, they may threaten inflation, etc. The chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, Alan Greenspan, told Congress today that the economy is virtually doing too well, and he said with record low unemployment, this could lead to the dreaded word inflation. So, when we look at the actual media coverage of domestic issues, whether it's welfare, the military, healthcare, labor and business, what we find is a systematic bias, not in, not in favor of liberal or progressive perspectives, but actually against them. In fact, we find pretty much exactly what Herman and Chomsky's institution analysis would predict that we find. The media's coverage of foreign policy news is very important. For most people, the media are the only source of information about the rest of the world. So the media have the power to frame the way we think about that world. For decades, the media has covered the world through a, a lens of anti-communism. Um, but it wasn't just a thoughtful anti-communism. Everything that could be described as socialist was portrayed as bad. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. 
if a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. America's religion for decades has been anti-communism, a very negative religion, but one that's had very powerful effect. It has been seized upon, too, by people who want policy to move in conservative direction. In fact, uh, pra in practically every case where, where we have knocked over democratic governments, uh, we have done it on the grounds that there was alleged threat of communism and the Soviet was in the background. The, the most impressive case in, was in the case of Guatemala back in 1954. Guatemala at that time had a democratic government. So we, we organized a, a contra-army and had this democracy overthrown and installed in its place was a government that was a terroristic government. Carlos Castilla Armas now speaks of the future. The aim of his government will be to restore the civil rights of the people, to establish a true democracy based on the principles of his movement of national liberation, truth, justice, and honest labor. What we have always done is use the alleged threat of communism, even when it's totally remote and totally implausible. We to cover over the fact that we want somebody there who will serve our needs more perfectly. What we've seen in recent years is that the ideology of anti-communism has evolved into something that's more positive but just as simplistic. And that's the idea that free market capitalism is the only viable or democratic system. Now, the study of world politics tells us that that's nonsense. Uh, many successful countries have mixed systems, what we might call social democracies while many of the world's most brutal dictatorships are, are capitalist dictatorships. But if you listen to American media reports, you'll constantly hear the words democracy and free market capitalism used as if they're interchangeable, as if they mean the same thing. Free market, free capitalist economy. It is the only way to get out of crisis and poverty. But the first priority is to turn communist farmers into capitalists. Only they can give the Poles the food needed for the challenge ahead. Boris Yeltsin in Russia is a beautiful example of reform in the sense of doing what the Western establishment wants done in Russia. And he has been engaged in returning Russia to capitalism as fast as he can do it. And so there's been massive privatization. In fact, privatization has been carried out before there were markets in which this could take place uh, in a, a, real, a reasonable way so that the privatization process has been hugely corrupt. Insiders have been taking over properties. Criminal elements have thrived in Russia. The damage to ordinary people has been absolutely spectacular. It's been a huge fall in output. There's been a, a redistribution of income upward, masses of people falling into serious poverty. And yet the West has kept pressing and supporting Yeltsin to go ahead with this process of privatization because, for one thing, Westerners are benefiting directly. There are a lot of Westerners who are participating in the privatization process, but also he's making the move away from socialism 
to capitalism irreversible. So the West has apologized for virtually everything he's done, the Chechnya war, the, the enormous thievery, and very little criticism of, of Yeltsin for his violations of parliamentary rule. <laughs> If you look at the data, there's no question that the shift to capitalism in Russia has been an unmitigated disaster. Under communism, the Russian economy experienced modest growth. Since 1989, when the Soviet system collapsed, the economy has shrunk by an average of around 10% every year. In real terms, the capita income in Russia is now less than one-third of its 1989 level. Even the average age of life expectancy has decreased. For men, it used to be around 63. Now it's around 56. And, ap and apart from a, a generally corrupt minority who profited from this transition, it's been eight years of misery for most Russian people. There was an article in the New York Times about two days ago on the, the sickness and misery of the Russian people. Their death rate of males in Russia is absolutely staggeringly high. It's higher than it was a hundred years ago. And the, the title of the New York Times article refers to the dark soul of Russians. The dark soul but they find it very difficult to, to locate the cause because it couldn't be privatization and, and the, the return of capitalism to Russia. It must be something else. Cuba is an interesting case of media bias. Essentially, there are two stories you could tell about Cuba. One would focus on the lack of political freedom in Cuba, although we should add that state repression and human rights abuses in Cuba are, are really pretty mild when compared to other US-backed Latin American countries like, say, Guatemala or El Salvador. The other story you could tell is one of extraordinary success in raising the standards of living of most ordinary Cubans, particularly in areas like education and healthcare. But the media will only ever tell you the first story. They'll never tell you the second one. Essentially, they reiterate the line put out by the US government by the more vociferous right-wing members of the exile community in Miami, which is to behave as if Cuba were the most egregious violator of human rights in the world. Talk to any human rights group, and they'll tell you that's an absurd proposition. Now, what is Cuban trouble, Castro's troublemaking in the hemisphere and the Soviet connection? Castro's troublemaking in the hemisphere is the spread of the Castro idea of taking matters into your own hands which has great appeal to poor and oppressed people in uh, Latin America suffering problems similar to those of Cuba who have the model of the Cuban revolution in front of them. If you pursue the reasoning, you'll figure out what the Cold War was about. Uh, it was overwhelmingly in our spheres about preventing the spread of the idea of taking matters into your own hands uh, and doing something to overcome poverty and misery and oppression. Uh, with uh, the model of someone else who did it in front of you, the model of the Castro Revolution. So that has to be smashed. One problem that the media has is that Cuba doesn't really look like the stereotype of a communist country. It has beautiful beaches, it has a thriving music scene, has a fabulous climate. So when American reporters go there, they have to work very hard to keep reminding you that Cuba is the enemy. And the benign images can't obscure the reality that this is a hardline, repressive, communist dictatorship. One way they do that, of course, is to avoid interviewing too many ordinary Cubans. When they do, you have the extraordinary sight of an American reporter 
who thinks he knows more about life in Cuba than they do. When was the last time somebody ran against Fidel Castro? Nobody has run against Fidel Castro. Ever? Ever. And you think you live in a democracy? I live in a democracy. And you are free? I'm free. You are free? Quietly free. You think, you say you're free? And Fidel Castro is a hero? He's a hero, He's right? A hero. He's a hero. The great media myth about U.S. foreign policy is that it's driven by a concern for democracy and human rights. It, it's amazing how powerful this myth is, given the evidence to the contrary. In the post-war period, the U.S. has supported and often installed really a, a horrific succession of dictators, whether it's Pinochet in Chile, Mobutu in Zaire, Suharto in Indonesia, Somoza in Nicaragua, the Duvaliers in Haiti, a series of brutal and autocratic regimes in El Salvador, in Guatemala, in Saudi Arabia, in fact, I think it was Nixon who said in a candid moment that Anastasia Somozia of Nicaragua, a man who operated the country like his personal estate and who terrorized his people with death squads, Nixon said that Somoza was the son of a bitch, but he, that he's our son of a bitch. The United States <clears throat> is very selective in its, its targets for democracy. It wants, the, it wants Mr. Kabila to be democratic, and of course it wants Cuba to be democratic. The most interesting thing, I think, is that the American media don't laugh. They don't say, my goodness, this is really very funny because look, we're in Saudi Arabia and we're, we have troops in Saudi Arabia to protect the Saudi theocracy. This is a, a government that will not allow dissident movements to exist. It's a, a, obviously an authoritarian government of a gross sort. If some brutal, murderous tyrant is doing his job, meaning keeping his country quiet, ensuring that the profits flow to the West, uh, you know, voting with the UN, at the, uh, with the United States the UN, whatever is required. As long as that's going on, it's just fine. We don't care what he does. Sotek say Saddam Hussein, I mean, brutal killer. Uh, he was gassing Kurds, you know, torturing dissidents, uh, extremely brutal. The United States loved him. He was one of our uh, favored trading partners. Uh, uh, right, uh, in fact, right up to the Gulf War, the United States was still showering aid and on him, lavishing, uh, you know, agricultural um, uh, exports, uh, technological assistance, and so on. There's just nothing wrong with him. Fine guy. Well, uh, August 2nd, 1990, he made a mistake. He misinterpreted U.S. orders. Uh, the U.S. had told him, look, if you want to rectify the border with Kuwait and take over, you know, sort of an oil well that they're, an oil field that they're drilling into, that kind of thing, that's fine, we don't care. He misinterpreted that and took over all of Kuwait. No, that's not allowed. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs on the Iraqi army. First, we're going to cut it off, and then we're going to kill it. The case of Saddam Hussein is a good illustration. When the U.S. was friendly towards Saddam Hussein, supplying him with arms in his war against Iran, the media pretty much ignored his brutal record. When the U.S. government decided that he was the enemy, suddenly his brutality became big news. This man who has been compared to Hitler may be capable of Hitlerian actions. The media coverage of the Gulf War, I think, is a good example of that capacity to accept the official line. We were told, for example, about the success of high-tech weapons, like the Patriot missile, uh, that its success was spectacular. In fact, it wasn't. The Patriot actually missed nearly every single time. 
We were told it was a moral war against a brutal dictator that invaded another country. And we are here because we believe in freedom, our freedom and the freedom of others. But if that was so, why weren't we at war with Indonesia, also ruled by a brutal dictator who had invaded another country, in this case East Timor? It's interesting to compare the media coverage of Indonesia's invasion of East Timor with Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. After the invasion of Kuwait, there was massive media coverage. After the invasion of East Timor, which involved slaughter on a vast scale, the media coverage of the area actually decreased. This was an invasion the US, in fact, tacitly supported. So not only was there no coverage, there was no outrage, no comment. The fact is, our attitude toward democracy externally seems to be totally opportunistic. Where there are gains from trade or gains from oil, as in Saudi Arabia, the United States is totally oblivious to the interests of democracy and will not even support democratic movements. And in the case of, of uh, Indonesia, the United States, Governments for years have been high, very supportive of the Suharto government, even though it's now illegally occupying East Timor and it killed vast numbers in that country. These things are irrelevant. It has opened its door to American business. It, and it, it, <clears throat> from the standpoint of American oil companies and others, it's, it's a, a, a very fine country. And therefore, for the United States, the question of democracy is literally is off the agenda. There was a recent election in, in Indonesia, and the media, the United States media, did give it coverage, and they noted that, that the opposition was really not a, allowed to, to campaign or really enter, enter on the ballot, and the, the Suharto the success was assured. And if you read between the lines, you can see that this was strictly a, 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 a phony election. But the, the thing that was interesting about the treatment of it is how it was treated antiseptically, you know? It's just part of the world, an objective fact, and nothing to get excited about or indignant over. It was election day today in the fourth most populous nation on Earth. That's Indonesia, more than 200 million people. The voting follows the most violent campaign in 30 years. Nearly 300 people died. They have begun counting the votes now, and as expected, the ruling party of President Suharto which tightly controlled the election, is winning a huge majority of the seats in Parliament. Now, if you compare that with elections in countries that were trying to destabilize, like back in 1984 and in 89-90, there were elections in Nicaragua, which was ruled by uh, the Sandinistas, who we didn't like. In 1984, there was an election in Nicaragua. Impartial international observers describe this election as a, a model of fairness in a region that was famous for rigged elections. There is general agreement that the balloting process itself was fair and open. I saw no conflict and, as I saw it, no possibility of any kind of monkey business in the voting. I think it was a very good and honest election. The problem was that the winners were the left-wing Sandinistas who the Reagan administration had been trying to overthrow, 
The Sandinistas continued to manipulate every aspect of the electoral process, including the police, the army, the media, and mass organizations, in an attempt to project the illusion of popular support. So the media were encouraged to ignore the election in 1984 and go along with the Reagan administration's attempts to discredit it. The Reagan administration considers Sunday's election a the sham. The election was denounced as a Soviet-style sham by President Reagan. Uh, nothing happened to change his mind. The election is between the ruling Sandinistas and very little opposition. This actually worked so well that by the time the Sandinistas called a second election in 1990, the media talked as if the first one hadn't existed. I remember watching Peter Jennings forget the 1984 election and wondering if someone would point out that he was effectively rewriting history. But nobody did, and he and everybody else kept on reporting this propagandist view as if it were fact. This Sunday, when the people of Nicaragua vote in their first free election in a decade, like this Sunday's election, the first free election in a decade. They don't know much about democracy, but then neither do most Nicaraguans, because no one here can remember the last time there was a free election. So you have this amazing, again, a beautiful double standard. For Indonesia, we're, we're happy with the government. They can run an election infinitely more phony than Nicaragua, and the media will treat it very lightly. And, but with Nicaragua, where our government wants to throw over the government, even though they had a, a government, an election far more democratic than most in the third world, we found flaws. And the media allowed this to be used to justify a military attack on that little country. Now, that's propaganda service. If we look at the coverage of international news, which theory makes most sense? If the media were liberal, we would expect to hear them constantly criticizing U.S. governments when they support brutal right-wing regimes. What we actually hear is, is pretty much a deafening silence. In fact, the regimes the media often choose to point the finger at are nearly always on the left, whether it's uh, Angola, Cuba, or Nicaragua. It's long been understood, you know, hundreds of years, uh, that unless people are controlled, uh, they're going to challenge power. Uh, they will not simply willingly accept subordination, uh, uh, domination, uh, hunger, and so on. Nobody's going to accept that if they have choices. Uh, so it is therefore necessary for those who uh, are in the positions of control decision-making, monopolized wealth, and so on, it is necessary for them to somehow keep the population uh, uh, from their throats, as they put it. And that can either be done by force or as force that capacity declines by uh, uh, control of opinion. There's no other method. 